G'day and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. John Lennon once screamed, it's a love that lasts forever, it's a love that has no past. He could have easily been presaging the emotional affair the public at large has had with the Beatles for now over five decades, a love affair that had barely begun when the Fabs acrimoniously dissolved in 1970. While I'm an easy mark for any kind of Beatles ephemera, I could have been convinced that we are past the point where a new Beatles book would be essential reading. Rolling Stone's Rob Sheffield proved me dead wrong with his compulsively readable fifth book, Dreaming the Beatles, which I devoured in the space of a couple of days and have since been passing around my friends like cocaine at an award show after-party bathroom. I'm delighted to welcome to the show the man who was once described as knowing music like the naked chef knows beef stroganoff. Rob Sheffield, welcome (laughs) to my favourite album. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Normally this show is me talking to a guest about a particular record they love, but I think I just want to talk to you about your book and about the Beatles. That sounds ideal. We could argue all day about our favorite Beatles album. We could. Actually, what is your favorite Beatles album? You know, I'm going to go with Rubber Soul. It's the one that means the most to me personally. I've been listening so much to the White Album lately, and that one is probably the one I've played most in the last year, and I've come to think it's probably the best. But Rubber Soul, for me, is it's the one. It's interesting because I feel like Rubber Soul is... The Beatles career has so many interesting, like if you graphed it, like on a chart, the sort of peaks and valleys of their record-making career, it always feels like it's in these little movements that are building into a certain direction. So Rubber Soul kind of gets somewhat overlooked because it's just before Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, I feel like sometimes. Absolutely. You know, like if you asked me this question most days in my 20s, I would have said help which is kind of a admittedly wrong answer, you know? Like, it's hard to make the case that Help is their best album. And yet, that's such an interesting period to me at 65, 66, where they're moving from being one thing to, you know, making it all up on the fly. So you listen to Revolver, and they have no idea what kind of album they're making. It changes from day to day. It changes from track to track. It's just beginning to hit them that they can do anything they want. Yeah, that transition from, like, the initial part of their career where I guess you could say they were trying to perfect this original version of the rock and roll music that they'd been listening to when they started playing together which sort of peaks with a hard day's night and then Help Forward it's about creating an entirely new kind of popular music. Absolutely. Help was the first one also Help the movie was my first exposure to the Beatles which is admittedly kind of ridiculous because it's nobody's favorite Beatle artifact it's nobody's favorite Beatle movie I think for the Beatles, it was their least favorite Beatles movie, and that includes the one that they practically broke up on film. I think Help, however, I saw it when I was a little kid. I was five years old. I was watching TV with my grandmother, and the movie Help was on. And it begins with the Beatles. They're singing the song Help. They're standing there together with their guitars. They're wearing their black turtlenecks. And I'd never seen or heard anything like this, and I couldn't believe 
the way their vocals play off each other in that song and the way that John will start a sentence and then Paul and George will fill in the rest of the sentence and they'll give him the courage to fill in the rest of the sentence. And it's almost like they're all listening to his story and telling his story with him. And I just, I could not believe how hard that hit me emotionally. And I never heard people sing together like that. And it was an absolutely life-changing moment. I was a like crazy Beatle maniac from that moment onward. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When, when I was young, was so much younger than today. I never, need, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Now, but now these days are gone. Days I'm not gone. so self-assured. It's a very sort of emotionally intense opening to what is an incredibly silly film. <laughs> I watch it as an adult, and admittedly, it's it's a little hard to bang the drum for it as a high point of of the Beatleology. And yet, everybody's entry point to the Beatles is different. Everybody comes into the story at a different time. And for me, Help was the one that sort of showed off the Beatles just at the moment where they were no longer boys and not quite men. They were sort of in that in-between, figuring out who they were, growing up from song to song, and the sort of experimental aspect of that. And the movie, admittedly, like a cartoon, was perfect for me since I was really into cartoons. Well, I know Martin Scorsese was a huge fan, or was probably still is a huge Seriously? fan. Seriously? Yeah. No way. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. I think he wrote, when they reissued it on DVD, God, probably like 10 years ago now, he wrote an essay sort of celebrating it as part of that release. You know, that totally makes sense because Mean Streets is a total John and Paul type of movie, you know, with like yeah. Harvey Keitel playing the Paul and Robert De Niro playing the John. It's that kind of dynamic. I mean, it totally makes sense to me that Scorsese, so many of his movies have, you know, like a good, cautious, functional boy and a really wild cannon, absolutely destructive, self-sabotaging boy who drags them both down. I can totally see Scorsese being into that movie. It's funny that John and Paul archetype or dynamic, I think it's as interesting, it's probably more complex than the Mick and Keith dynamic, which is something you see people reference a lot. And I know you've talked about and you wrote about like trying to come to terms with whether you're a John or a Paul. <laughs> and I think like we're probably both Pauls. I was reading something you, you said about that the other day and I was thinking about the Johns in my life. And I wonder if you think about like there's people in your life who you think of, they're a John and I'm the Paul who's cleaning up after them. Yeah, I tend to be more of a Paul. I have three sisters, all of whom are Johns in their way. <laughs> so I'm used to like being the only boy in the family and the only brother. And I tend to fall into Paul-like roles. And that probably stuck with me. Also, my sisters were all madly in love with Paul. And so I always had this fascination with Paul. I loved the album Rubber Soul, listening to this album. You know, the way a song like Drive My Car is so funny and the way that they were able to have really funny songs and really romantic songs sort of side by side. That was really revelatory to me as a little boy. Well, since we're talking about entry points into the Beatles, your entry point into the Beatles, it brings me around to something I wanted to talk about, which is I think whether this is strategic or not, they've been very effective 
at giving each generation a clean entry point into the band, like, you know, whether it was like the Red and Blue albums, and then you go forward and there's the anthologies, and then there's the Number Ones compilation album that was huge, and then there was the remasters, and there's another one, I guess, this year with the White Album reissue, another, like, new release where the album's going to be presented in a more contemporary listening experience with the stereo remix and i don't know like what your thoughts are on this but it's an interesting idea to think that there's going to be some people for whom this release of the wine album this will be their first going from vaguely understanding who the beatles are going like okay this is going to be the moment where i choose to listen to the beatles and i'm going to listen to the wine album on spotify when this comes out or they're going to pick up the vinyl or whatever and that's going to be their first exposure to the band but it's also funny that those of us who you know, we know the music inside out, but we're going to learn more about it and change our minds about a lot of aspects of it, as we did with the Sgt. Pepper reissue last year. And I guess that's something that's fascinating about the Beatles to me is that, you know, your Beatles keep changing through your life because of the sort of emotional and artistic things that they mean to you as you keep changing, your Beatles keep changing. So for me, it's funny that, for instance, you know, you mentioned all those like historic entry points like the Red and Blue album and the anthology and the one compilation. Another huge one for that that's kind of forgotten these days is the Beatles rock band video game. Oh, yeah. It's funny how I didn't mention that in this book. And that was something that for a lot of my friends, especially ones who were born in the 90s, they said that was their introduction to the Beatles. And it was funny because I remember playing with my nieces and nephews when it came out. Something that really shocked me was they were doing a Helter Skelter and there's a part where the little cartoon Ringo yells, I got blisters on my fingers. Yes. And I said, ah, they got that wrong. That's John. And my sister said, no, it's not John. It's Ringo. And we had this argument and I ended up staying up late texting so many of my music freak <laughs> friends. Okay. Who says I got blisters on my fingers? Is it Ringo or John? And opinion was split. It turned out that it was Ringo. But I thought, here I am. I've heard this all my life and I'm still learning things about it. It's crazy. Well, that is, I think, one of the key like thrusts of your book is how much like the band may have broken up in 1970, but their story has continued on. And so much of their story has been about the relationship you have with them after that. And then I guess like the way we keep reinterpreting the story of the Beatles. And it's interesting because I wanted to get into the new Wine album reissue with you because you're one of the few people who's actually heard it. <laughs> And I feel like one of the things that is going on there, whether this is strategic or not, is it's another bit of narrative reinterpretation. Because the story, as we all understand it contemporaneously, is that the Wine album was like everyone at each other's throats. Everyone hated each other. People were quitting the band. People were walking out of the studio. You know, Yoko was in there with the first time. There was all this tension going on. And a lot of the outtakes from the piece in Rolling Stone where you previewed the set seemed to be, you know, showing the other side of that, that they were still a functioning band and that there were plenty of moments where they were all pulling together to create. Yeah, it's kind of shocking to hear and it sort of changes the narrative of you know, the idea of the White Album, as I think John was the one who said, it was like four solo artists, you know, making four solo records and and just using the others as a backup band. And listening to the sort of interaction on the new one, it definitely makes that story a little harder to sustain. And you can certainly understand why the Beatles were keen to sort of spin the album that way after they broke up and they're independent. But it's strange to listen to. For instance, there's this new version of Good Night, which has never been heard before, or as far as I know, bootlegged or even rumored before, where all four of them are singing and they're singing harmonies on the Good Night Sleep type part. And John is playing this guitar lick that's basically the finger-picking style that's 
from Julia or Dear Prudence, the kind that he learned in India from Donovan. And it's funny to think that this is like a totally different approach to Good Night, a song we all know well. I love the version on the album, but it's kind of crazy to hear them all sing it together and to hear the warmth and, and camaraderie of it. And I thought, well, this doesn't really make sense. <laughs> and of course, we think of Abbey Road as the one where they said, come on, like, let's get it back together. Let's get the old team spirit back together again. But Abbey Road is much more one where they recorded separately and then put it together into the studio. It's funny that the stories that sort of like we bring to these albums, that those change as the albums change through the years. Listening to the White Album, this is a band. And like bands or like groups of people in general, they're often at each other's throats. But it's weird to hear how much humor and warmth and creativity is there. Yeah, and I think that kind of speaks to people want to make really broad proclamations about elements of the Beatles story going back to you know all the people who are like John was the authentic hard rocking <laughs> truth teller Paul was the wimpy granny music obsessed self promoter and there's obviously like small extents to which those statements could be applied to either of them but that's also a completely disregarding major parts of their character and the idea that the White Album was all toxic when obviously it wasn't a lot of the time they're obviously like Ringo left for a reason so there was some <laughs> of that was going on but like how many months did they spend in the studio making that? Five months. Yeah so it, it wasn't five months of misery it sounds like it was five months of a lot of like great collaborative moments and sessions and experiences and then also some like passive-aggressive stuff where they all sort of like side-eyeing each other. Yeah, it's funny what you said about that idea of like John is the really, you know, aggressive, raw, honest one and Paul is, you know, the sappy one, which is when I was growing up in the 80s, that was the accepted narrative that was almost a mandatory tenet of the Beatles story. And we were just to stick to songs that we've mentioned already so far. It was John who wrote Goodnight. It was Paul who wrote Helter Skelter. They both had plenty of those elements like in each other and that they recognized in each other. And that's part of what brought them together. Really just astounding, intense, troublesome friendship that 38 years after his friend was killed, Paul McCartney is still working out the details of that friendship. I think that's part of why we hear ourselves in the John Paul Bond is because the fact that friendship was broken by death before they had a chance to sort of reconcile as adults just adds some of the pathos that we hear in their voices. Yeah. One thing I think about a lot is how much of their relationships, not just John and Paul, but all four of them, were rooted in their initial dynamic when they got together. It seems to me that, you know, when Paul met John when they were kids, John was a little bit older. He was, you know, he was drinking, he was smoking. The first time Paul saw him, John was singing a song where he changed the lyrics to be about going down to the penitentiary. <laughs> so there was this hero worship. And so Paul was always trying to impress John and live up to what he saw as being this, like, the older, cooler brother figure. Whereas George was, like, the younger kid from the neighborhood who sort of Paul did a favor by getting him into the band. And to an extent, I feel like they both treated him like he was the kid who they were doing a favor to by keeping him in the band even at the end to the extent that when he tries to pull out all things must pass during the letter b sessions john just like could not give less of a shit no he sat there playing a chuck berry riff almost like going back to those high school gigs in in liverpool in the 50s when he was like doing the dell vikings he just could not even pretend to be interested in playing george's song you know it's funny because like very small differences of age make such a huge difference to such yeah. young boys it's hard not to totally feel for george in that he's 
respected and revered and acclaimed around the world as you know this really like important and respected and original musician and yet the people he can't get any respect from are the guys <laughs> in his own band you know we all have that with you know our families or our friends or whatever we all have elements of that and so all these different aspects of the story that you know like you said like so much of it is they're trying to impress each other and that's something that comes across in, in so much of their collaboration which you know is so often marked by competition i just i love how john brings in strawberry fields forever this song about liverpool and paul says that's brilliant and comes back a few days later with penny lane they weren't in the same room when they were writing these songs but it's a collaboration in the sense that they were really trying to impress each other yeah i mean the thing i always felt bad for george is that he just had the bad luck of being the third most talented songwriter in the beatles <laughs> which is still pretty great i mean if bob dylan had been in the beatles he would have probably been the third most talented songwriter <laughs> in the beatles he's got a lot of ceiling left to clear but it's hard to get songs on a record when you're competing against revolution and julia or blackbird george wrote a lot of great songs and i guess towards the end i wonder if he'd even just stop bringing some of them to the band he was just like I'll just stick this in the bag (laughs) I'm not even going to bother if you listen to the new edition of the White Album it has a disc devoted to the Esher demos I look at you all see the lover that's sleeping while my guitar are a fascinating artifact. I've only heard that before on crummy bootlegs. And even then, I've always been fascinated by them and have always loved them. So it's kind of mind-blowing to hear them now, actually, like, in full clarity and, and hear, like, what they're doing musically there. But it's funny to hear that the Isher demo, and of course, they're back from India. They've just been in the mountains for a few months, and they don't have any electric instruments. Also, they don't have a drug supply. So they're writing relatively clear-headed, really strong, really direct songs, really personal songs in India. And they come back, and they sit in George's bungalow in Isher and do a bunch of demos on two-track tape, which is something that they'd never tried before and never went back to. But listen to those 27 de- demos you listen to george's songs and how strong they are and how confident he is you listen to not guilty and just the version on the demo it's good to go they could have put that version on the album and it would have been releasable and instead during the making of the white album it went through 102 takes and it still didn't make the record and it's so funny that on the white album box take 102 of not guilty is on the <laughs> box and you listen to it and it's like yeah you know it's not quite as good as the demo they could have just put the demo on the album and saved themselves month of aggravation poor george he ended up not even releasing not guilty until 10 years later on his 1979 solo album i guess it was so traumatic to him but you listen to it and it was good to go on the demo that song i always felt bad about because the beatles cut really good band versions of that song like I think there's a version on the third anthology CD. Yeah, that's good. Which is way better than the version on George's record. <laughs> Much better, sadly, yes. Not guilty. 
getting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. Now I'm guilty, and I'm known for the rest. I'm not trying to steal your vest. I am not trying to be smart. I only want what I can get. I'm really sorry for your aging head, but like you heard me said, I'm not guilty. And it's also much better than, for example, Revolution Number no. 9, which they could have left off the record in favour of Not Guilty and, you know, Sour Milk Sea or whatever else George had lying around at the time. <laughs> Sour Milk Sea is such a great song. That's another kind of shocker that it got away. Circles is another song that he demoed. But it's also surprising that given that George was always probably going to be limited to a smaller number of songs, it's increasingly strange to me that the more I listen to this, that Piggies made the cut. There's yeah. kind of no scenario in which you'd say, you know, George, Not Guilty is a pretty good song, but you know what? The one you should put on the album? Piggies. That's the keeper. <laughs> Harpsichord solos and grunting. That's the future. Yeah. Have you done the sort of tried and true pastimes of Beatles nerds when they get together, which is try and create your single disc version of the white album like cut it down to one lp yes indeed it's funny because i grew up again in in the 80s when literally everybody listening to the white album made a tape and that's what you did in the 80s with most albums you listened to you made a tape of the album and you left out the songs that you just plain didn't like so for me for instance i always forget that the word is on Rubber Soul because I just didn't like that one and I left it off my tape and I've come to like the word now very much but it's the way we listened to albums back then like putting them on cassette and so the White Album was always a challenge because everybody's White Album was different so I'd hear somebody else play their White Album which meant, you know, like side one of a C90 usually a Max Eller Memorex and I'd say, whoa, I forgot about that Honey Pie I remember that song, Honey Pie. Yep, I still don't like it. I'm so glad I left it off my tape. But that's part of like the experience with the White Album and with all their albums, but especially the White Album, is that it forces you to become one of the Beatles, really. And it forces you to make the choice of, okay, what's on the album and what isn't. What's on your single disc version? I can't, you see, I should have brought my most recent, because I do this every like couple of years. Or same, whatever. absolute same, yep. I've been living with a diehard Beatles nerd in Nashville for the past year. And every now and again, he and I will be like, opening a bottle of rosé and we'll end up trimming down our white albums list or the other one we do which is you do your Beatles solo album compilation where it's like all the records that came out between 70 and 72 as one absolutely Beatles yep record. that's a fascinating exercise in itself for the white album it's weird how it changes because I have different tapes that I've made over the years so I have a 1980 white album and I have a 1982 white album and I have a 1986 white album I have a goes all the way up to a 2002 white album and it's funny that there's some songs that are on every single version of it. Almost always it begins with Martha My Dear and I put that one at the start because I love that song. As far as I know, I've never convinced anybody to love it quite as much as I do. But Martha My Dear and Julia are are my two favorite songs on the White Album. And to me, it blows my mind that I've come to really like Revolution 1, which for years, ask me at any point in my 20s or 30s, I would have named that as one of the worst five Beatles tracks. In fact, I would have rated it below Revolution 9. Something about it just struck me as just smug and slow motion-y and just really like it summed up a lot that I didn't like 
And so it's really kind of baffling for me in recent years that I've really come to like Revolution One and Helter Skelter, songs that I used to regard as total throwaways, whereas I've completely lost my taste for Birthday, which I loved as a little kid. Birthday, you can wear out. Like, there's definitely a period where I couldn't listen to Birthday for a while because it was just too, like, all the little cute bits about it get on your nerves after a while, especially like the dance and take a chance stuff like that wears thin when you expose yourself to it a bit too much. Yeah. Honey pie is like that to me too. Like honey pie is a little cute for me. I actually like wild honey pie better than honey pie, just because at least it's over faster. (laughs) Uh, Honey pie, there's something cloying about it and it's clever, but it's funny how the deep weirdness of the album, also the way the songs are mastered, it's such totally different volumes. So Mm -hmm. If you were making your white album tape in the 80s, you had to pot it really high in order to get the piano at the end of Sexy Sadie. But of course, Sexy Sadie is very quiet. And then Helter Skelter comes in, total party killer. So you had to have a really quick finger on the pause button to make sure that you got the last piano notes of Sexy Sadie, but you didn't get it ruined by the intro to Helter Skelter. Then, of course, after Helter Skelter comes the quietest song in the album, Long, Long, Long. Yeah, which, which is barely audible. You can barely hear it. So you're going to love the new version like which is not adding to anything that's on the recording but you can finally hear the song and it makes it all the more baffling that they mastered it at such a low volume and of course that was part of its emotional statement but you listen to it now and George is doing all this stuff on the acoustic guitar that you just plain could not hear before because I was wondering about that I was going to ask you about that later because I'm sure there's a certain element of Beatles fandom who think like doing anything doing these new stereo mixes at all is some kind of like desecration of the canon or you know that kind of vibe I mean, personally, I just think, great, they're going to sound better, which is, like, primarily my interest in them, which is sounding as good as they can. Like, I think the mixes on the Love record are some of my favorite versions of some of the Beatles. Like, the version of Help on the Beatles' Love album is sounds better than the mix on Help. But that's what I was curious about, whether the remix got to the point of actually adjusting the mastering and the relative volume levels and all that. As well. so, yeah, what they were doing is removing a lot of the compression that was necessary to get it all on one record in, in 1968. And so they haven't added anything to the original tapes, but they're able to get more of the tapes onto the released version. So Long, Long, Long is a great example. You listen to it and you can hear George is playing acoustic guitar. You can really only hear like, you know, maybe like the top third of what he's doing on the album version. And of course, I'm used to listening to the album version on tape at turning the volume all the way up just to hear any of it. Yeah. And so it's really remarkable. Also listening to the different versions of a take 44 of Long, Long, Long is really amazing. And you really hear that it's above everything else. It's a duet between George and Ringo. And that's really just the two of them. And John and Paul are sort of like hovering in the background just as their backup band. But it's definitely, it's a different way of listening to just because more of the music is audible and it's less compressed. But I like every version of everything. And so it's funny that when they remastered it, they took out a mistake in Day Tripper. I'm sure you remember the one. There's a part like in the third verse where there's a bad edit and just the bass pops out for a moment. Like it's inexplicable, but it's a mistake that was always there in the album. And I always notice when I listen to the fixed version and I think, well, you know, I know it because like that's where the bass is supposed to drop out. Just a bad edit in the third verse. I'm fine with that bad edit being there and I hear it in my head. I don't mind hearing the different version, but it's a soon quick way thing.
I grew up with a German album called Beatles Greatest, which has a hi-hat intro to All My Loving that isn't on any other version of it that I've ever heard. Like a counting. Yes. So it just begins with Ringo going, tss, 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 close your eyes and I'll kiss you, etc. But the song doesn't begin with like just Paul's voice, just, you know, a cold open. It, it begins with that. Tss, 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 tss. And so that was the version I grew up with. And that's the version that I memorized and the version that I know and the version that I still play the most. Wow. So I've always been hearing a wrong version of All My Loving that has this Ringo on the hi-hat just count in that isn't on any other version, isn't on the canonical versions. But to me, it's part of the song. Well, I guess, did you grow up with like the quote-unquote wrong versions of a lot of these records anyway? Like with the US oh, yeah. versions? With oh, the yeah. track listings? Oh, yeah. It's so nutty that Rubber Soul, as I was saying earlier, is my favorite Beatles record, but I can't even decide which version I like better. The UK original authentic version or the butchered US version, which has... I've Just Seen a Face is the opening song, which one of the truly great opening songs in the history of vinyl LPs. Side one begins with I've Just Seen a Face in Norwegian Wood. What a one-two punch. And so it's funny for me that having like the different versions of the records and the sort of the butchered US versions, I guess it was very disillusioning to find out as a little kid that I wasn't listening to the real Revolver and that like for some reason they just chopped off three of the best John songs. So... Americans never even heard the real revolver till 1987, which is mind-blowing in retrospect. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that idea of what the real version is, I mean, it's important historically, it's important for the sake of accuracy, it's important journalistically, but, you know, it's not the Bible. They're records. Like, if that's the version you grew up with and that's the version you like most, then why is that any less valid just because it wasn't how it was originally intended to be released? Yeah, and having the different versions of them, I have to say with Sgt. Pepper, that Sgt. Pepper is an album that I'm just, I've always been kind of lukewarm on the songs. It was never my favorite Beatle record. And that's one that really changed for me a lot, hearing the different approaches to the songs and hearing a song like Within You, Without You, which I had never ever liked and had always just dismissed as George at his most trivial and most solemn. But that's one that just hearing like George's different approaches to it, I just really kind of opened the song up for me. Now I actually like that song, which I wouldn't have thought was possible a couple of years ago. Have you come around on From Me To You yet? Yes, I completely came around on From Me To You. A few weeks ago, I saw Paul play it live for the first time in the US since the first Beatles tour in 64. And he was playing at Grand Central Station you know, a train station, and he busted out from me to you. And I was so happy to hear it. And I remember thinking like halfway through it as I was singing along, I don't even like this song. It's making me so incredibly happy. And I don't even like this one. I just plain do not like it. But even when I was a little kid listening to Beatles Greatest, I was like, yeah, 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 this is filler. Let's get to the real songs. And it's funny that from me to you, I've had it in my head pretty much continuously for the past few weeks. And it's <laughs> Like I said, that was a Beatles song I didn't like till a few weeks ago. It's really nutty. just like the fundamental thing about the Beatles that there is no point at which you can be done with your relationship evolving absolutely the story never closes it never comes to a and then this happened and that was the Beatles because what the Beatles are are always changing it's crazy it's exciting but also it's a little scary I want to go back to something you referenced a few minutes ago which is something I've been thinking about a lot recently 
around the White Album, which is the fact that they had been off drugs when they were writing those songs, and especially with John. I feel like the Beatles' drug use is normally talked of in terms of is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds about LSD or not? Or did they, like, take a hit and then bang, an idea came to John and he wrote a thing down. But it's not so much talked about it in a way which I think is more interesting, which is how was the different drugs they were taking influencing their behaviour? John was pretty heavily into heroin when the band broke up, and that's probably not a coincidence. Paul was doing a bit of coke when he became the like dominant driving force in the band. Probably also not a total coincidence. And they were clean when they wrote a lot of these songs on the Wine album. And John, who had spent the last few years going like, what can I write a song about without getting up from my armchair and <laughs> was suddenly writing all these other like, you know, introspective and way more expansive songs. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that John, who had spent a lot of 66 and 67 just, you know, like you said, sitting in his armchair and watching TV and dropping acid, really just as a way of distracting himself. It's strange to listen to Sgt. Pepper and just just try to concentrate on the John moments. He's a very muted presence on the album. Whereas with the White Album, he went to India and the Beatles, they just smuggled in a little stash of weed. So they were able to smoke a little weed from time to time, but they didn't have the constant supply of drugs and groupies and other distractions that they were used to. John, as he put it, we sat in the mountains eating lousy vegetarian food and writing all these songs. He had nothing but his acoustic guitar. And it's really amazing. He just had the songwriting hot streak of his life. When we think of John Lennon as one of the all-time great singers and songwriters, really his reputation rests more than anything on those few months that he had in India in early 1968. Yeah, that's a good point. And even to an extent that outlasted that period, because, you know, even through to his solo career, like Jealous Guy, the melody came from that period too. He did something that I kind of wish McCartney would do sometimes, which is go, I've got a great melody and a great chord progression. This lyric's not good enough yet. I'm going to put this aside for a few years and then write a better lyric. Yeah, that's a good point. McCartney would probably agree with you on that one. Let's talk about Paul for a little bit, because I feel like he is both the hardest working man in popular music and very, very lazy in some other ways, <laughs> in that he will like slave over perfecting arrangements and getting exactly the right bass part and putting a little bit of dissonant piano into a track. But if he doesn't get the lyric right, or wherever the lyric gets in his initial period of writing, it's like, okay, I've got the words, that's fine. And then he'll just put all his energy into like the recording and the parts and everything. Well, he's, he's always into moving on, moving forward. Once a song is good enough and it's done, he'll put it out there. And that's sort of like, it's a decision he made to be that kind of prolific artist. There's a great line that he had in Q magazine in 1989 where he was looking back over his albums and he said, there is a lot of rubbish there. And sometimes I listen to that and I think, yeah, that'll be a good song when it's finished. (laughs) It's true. You know, like he could have gone back and said, okay, you know, let him in. There's a pretty good chord progression here. I could maybe write a song with that. But let him in is not a song, really. It's seven minutes of just stoned blathering always so weird to hear that on the radio. My mom's soft rock hits of the 70s, 80s, and today. And they play Let Him In, and I think, wow, like, nobody anywhere near Paul McCartney was allowed to say, nope, you have to finish the song, because (laughs) this is it. And no, the trombone solo doesn't add anything. Neither do the military drum rolls at the end, and neither does the flute solo. That's just a chord progression that you haven't written a song around yet. And part of, like, what fascinates me about Paul is just that he is so driven, 
I saw him Friday night, just a few nights ago in Austin at Austin City Limits. And as always with seeing Paul, you have to marvel, you know, he's 76 years old. He is just out there to earn it. He works so incredibly hard. He crams in as many songs as he can. He doesn't do long stories. He doesn't do wardrobe changes. He only has four backup musicians. It's the same band he's been playing with for years. At this point, they've been a band longer than the Beatles and Wings combined. Yeah. (laughs) And he crams in as many songs as he can. He doesn't fool around. And he hates to leave the stage. And that's something that's always kind of a frightening thing to see when I'm seeing Paul live. Now, I mentioned that Giggy played in the train station a few weeks ago. It was Grand Central Station. His new album was out, which I love. It's called Egypt Station. And it was the day it was released. And he said, yeah, I'm going to do a gig in a train station. And of course, the last time he released an album, he played in Times Square and he did three songs. And that was fine. Nobody complained he only did three songs in Times Square. So nobody really knew how many songs he was going to do in Grand Central Station. Thought maybe he'll do five or six, maybe even seven. He played for two hours. He did well (laughs) over 30 songs. He was doing a real show and he was working incredibly hard at it with people who, you know, as almost always at a Paul show, would have been more than satisfied with a lot less. That he keeps driving himself to write new songs and keep in touch with modern pop in in a way that's really kind of, you know, he doesn't need to do that. It's funny that in his live show, he still does the song he had with Kanye and Rihanna a couple Mm. years ago, Four or Five Seconds. It's funny, you know, Kanye and Rihanna are not still doing that song in any live set. And I'm sure, like, you know, they forgot about it the day after they finished it. I'm sure it does not loom large for them in their memory. But for Paul... He's so incredibly proud of having had this top 10 hit. He's so incredibly proud that he works with Rihanna and Kanye, that he's not stuck in the past, that he's not resting on his laurels, that he's always pushing on to the next hit. That's something that defines him in a way that people often dismiss him as soft and lazy and complacent. In so many ways, he's the exact opposite of that to a frightening extreme. Nobody else in pop music, 76 years old, a lot of them are still making records, but they're not so eager to have those records make an impact on people. And that he is so proud of being a part of, you know, the real and busy world of pop. It's something that sets him apart from almost all his peers. You know, let's face it, most of them stopped listening to music in 1974. And Paul is always pushing onward. And there's something just beautiful and relentless and and brutal and fascinating about that. Yeah, he's almost unique of his generation that I don't think I've ever heard him complain about contemporary radio or contemporary pop music or technological changes in pop music or anything like that, where you can find everybody from Roger Daltrey to David Crosby as mouthed off about, like, everything from American Idol to auto-tune to synthesizers to, you know, to whatever. Whereas Paul has always been like, something new, could be interesting. 
how do I <laughs> how do I innovate in my own work to be able to be a part of this? Absolutely, and that's something definitely nobody else among his peers. I mean, with people like you know Keith Richards, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, they've been complaining about how watered down and trivial modern music is since seventy two, seventy three. They see themselves as representing you know an endangered tradition that must be kept alive, and just that's the opposite of what Paul has always felt about pop. He's always excited about what pop means right now, and. He's keen to be part of that in, in a way that he really doesn't have to work that hard in everything he does, whether it's performing or record making, doesn't have to push himself as hard as he does. I mean, he was always the guy who was like, let's do something new. The line he pulls out in interviews all the time now is going, well, you know, well, we said, let's not use the same drum sound we use. We just use that on the, let's get a new drum sound for the next track. That was a terrible impression. But that's still a driving thing for him. And took him a lot of years to come to terms with and I'm curious to know your opinion of how you think he feels about it now but to realize that to an extent his life is going to be defined by eight years in his 20s and nothing he does no matter how much he achieves how much success he has is going to matter to people quite as much as those eight years in his 20s increasingly long time ago yeah and yet I think he's right to take pride in the fact that those eight years are an ever-expanding universe. He really loves turning an audience on and making an audience excited and hearing an audience sing. And that's been, you know, the dominant factor in his life since 60 years ago when he met John Lennon and started playing on stage. From the very beginning, all these great stories in Mark Lewison's book turn on about the early Hamburg days. Even then, he really loved to sing songs that you cannot believe that the Beatles played in Hamburg. Like, Paul loved to sing Judy Garland's Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And the Beatles would make fun of him because he would always flutter his eyes when he sang it because he knew it reduced the girls to oatmeal. And the other Beatles would stand behind him and do imitations of his facial expressions and his eyelash fluttering because already then they were so amused by the fact that he was really, really tuned into making an audience feel something. And that's something that the other Beatles found very exhausting about Paul. It's something that as an audience member you find really exhausting about Paul. And I saw him the other night and he played for three hours and it was really funny to think, okay, it's hot, it's 100 degrees here. <laughs> we're all tired out. Why are you still going? You know, that's the part that is always bewildering and inspiring about Paul. I remember the last time I saw him, which was at that Desert Trip Festival a couple of years ago, and I did my back, like I threw my back out during the course of his set, and I was like, I'm 26, you are 74. How come you were walking off stage looking like you could go for another three hours and I'm going to stagger back to the car after this? And he prides himself on that, and it's really strange to see. It's funny that he and Mick Jagger are so similar in so many ways it's funny that Mick Jagger, we think of superficially as being Mick Jagger definitely wanted to be seen as the opposite of Paul in so many ways. And yet they're driven by so many of the same obsessions. They work so much harder than anyone else. It's funny now when you see the stones, you could see the other stones are, Mick, why are you doing this to us? Why are you making us, you know, <laughs> you know, like Mick does the entire show on his toes. He is absolutely driven, like primal, physical performer, much like Paul, to the extent of you have to marvel at their stamina, but you have also have to think how exhausting it must be for everybody who's in the vicinity of it. And it is exhausting as an audience member. With Paul, the way he hates to leave the stage, he always wants to play more songs, and he always wants to get that feedback from the audience. 
There's a moment that I love in Hey Jude every single time he does it where he has the sing-alongs at the end, everybody singing their na-na-na-na-na-na-na. And he has a part where he says, okay, now just the men sing it. And he does not care about the sound of men singing. He only does that as an excuse for the next part where he says, okay, now just the women, just the women sing. And they sing it and he always says, I love that sound. And it's funny because he says that line word for word every single show at the same moment and yet... You cannot deny that he absolutely means it 100%. He does love that sound. His whole life is built around sort of coaxing that sound forth. And at the sound of thousands and thousands of happy women singing his melody back to him, that is the sound he lives for. And, and really, like, you could easily believe the entire show for him is just a build-up to that moment where he stands there and listens to all these women sing his melody back to him. Okay, solamente el hombres, los hombres, come on. Cannot deny, even when you hear it, no matter how many times you hear him deliver that same line verbatim, he means it every single time. Well, I guess that's the ultimate, that's the Paul paradox. That's the thing that people who don't like Paul McCartney or disdain him in some way can't reconcile. The idea that he'll go out and do largely the same show night after night, play these dozens of Beatles classics and like songs that he's been playing for over 50 years for some of them. And he's not doing that because he's phoning it in. It's the opposite. He's doing it because he's going to work as hard as possible for the audience to have the ultimate Paul McCartney experience and also the ultimate Beatles experience because he's now the custodian of like you can't go and see the Beatles. So you go and see Paul McCartney and Paul McCartney will give you the closest thing you're ever going to get to seeing the Beatles at his show. And he's not going to let you leave there. You know, it's like the other day he was like, yeah, I'm going to play from me to you. And I know you don't think you like this song, but I'm going to make you like it. You will be entertained. You will have a great time. This will be one of the most meaningful concert experiences of your life audience. And I'm just going to make that happen. Yeah, it's fascinating. Something he does at nearly every show, there's the acoustic interlude where he starts to play Blackbird. And when he starts to play Blackbird, he doesn't have to ask anyone to sing along. He starts playing Blackbird and anybody who's nearby, thousands and thousands of people are going to sing. It's really just a kind of astonishing sound. And he always goes from that one, Blackbird, into the other acoustic song, which is Here Today, which is his song for John Lennon, which was never a hit, never a single, never a crowd-pleasing kind of song. It's funny that after Blackbird, it's very conspicuous that nobody knows this song except for hardcore Paul freaks who've actually listened to the deep cuts on Tug of War. But compared to Blackbird, people do not know this song and nobody sings it. And even those of us who know and love the song don't sing along with it because it seems so private. And it's really strange to see him go from public Paul to private Paul in just the wink of an eye. And he goes from singing Blackbird and he loves that everybody can sing Blackbird, but then he goes right to Here Today, a song that he knows for a fact nobody is going to sing, and yet it's part of the statement he wants to make. He always says that it's his tribute to John Lennon, 
And it's stuff that he wishes he could have said to John Lennon while he was alive. And it seems really private and personal in a way that's really not necessary. He doesn't have to go that deep into his... He could just say, hey, let's dedicate this one to John Lennon. People would just cheer. And he could have done a crowd-pleasing tribute to John if he'd wanted to do that. Everybody was scoring hits in the 80s with, you know, half-assed tributes to John, whether it was <laughs> Elton John, Empty Garden, or George with all those years ago. Everybody was squeezing out hits that were tributes to John and, and always very heartfelt. Paul deliberately made Here Today a very private song, not a chorus, not a hook. He made it a song that would force the listener to hear it as a very personal and private statement from Paul. And if I said I really knew you well what would your answer be if you were here today? Ooh, here today. Well, knowing you, you probably laugh and say that we were worlds apart. If you were here. But as for me, I still remember how it was before, and I am holding back the tears no more. It's always surprising to me that he wants to play it in his live show, and there's absolutely no way he's not aware that this is a song that people do not know and are not dying to hear. But this is part of the statement he wants to make, and that for him, that's all him. The Blackbird Paul and the Here Today Paul, they're both him. Mm. Well, you've made this comparison before, and I want to unpack it with you. Paul McCartney and Taylor Swift. (laughs) I am a huge Taylor Swift fan. I saw the reputation show in Nashville a couple of months ago. She is probably, we'll talk about this, but like represents now what the Beatles represented in like the closest you can make in terms of the meaningfulness and the universality of the love and sort of the generation crossing and just she's kind of the person who occupies the place of like even if you don't like it you have to respect it you have to respect what she's done and you have to respect her talent yes but she's got that Paul personality. It's really weird that the Paul personality, which is a freak of nature and a combination of extreme character traits that in many ways are totally contradictory. I always thought Paul was the only genetic freak of nature who had that combination of those traits. Taylor Swift has the same chemistry. It's really funny to see that she's the second and so far only other iteration of the Paul chemistry, where she's got those intense people-pleasing instincts, also those incredibly stubborn and independent streak, and also just something about her personality and the combination of cautiousness in some ways and recklessness in other ways, and the fact that she drives so many people out of their minds, even when all she's trying to do is appeal to people and conciliate to people, and sometimes she does something that she thinks will convert her enemies, and it just makes them hate her more. It's really <laughs> funny that she's got all those Paul character traits in the same proportions. It's really amazing. And, you know, the fact that she's a songwriter on the same level as him, I said it and I will say it tomorrow and I will mean it tomorrow. But that she is so driven to entertain and yet cannot help but piss people off no matter what she does. Paul is the only other entertainer who's got that combo. Sign, bad sign, something happens when everybody finds I see. 
think there's just people out there who can't treat as a virtue wanting to make people happy as an artistic goal. Like, Paul McCartney makes records and he will put them out when he thinks he's made a record that when people listen to it, they will be made more happy by listening to the record. It's the reason why he never put Carnival of Light out, because, like, that was an interesting studio experiment for him, but he didn't think anyone would actually be entertained by it. He's quite open about the fact that he wants to make records that people will like, and he cares about that, and I think Taylor Swift has that same thing. She wants you to go to one of her shows and it to be the best night out of your life. I think she might have actually described the 1989 tour in those terms. And a lot of people, especially like a lot of rock fans, look at that and go like, oh, that's bullshit. That's inauthentic. That's not how musicians are meant to conceive of their art. Yes. And that she is so eccentric and so, you know, willfully weird in her songwriting. She's kind of got that Ram thing where she thinks she's making a pop album and she's making a really weird record. Sometimes she thinks she's making a really weird record and it's a really pop record. She's got that really strange Paul McCartney combination of traits, especially where she is always aiming to do something different than what she did last time. Even when what she did last time is what she should keep doing, you know, you <laughs> yeah. could make the case, Paul McCartney, why don't, you know, your solo career is just beginning. You just made Abbey Road. Why don't you just make Abbey Road over and over again every time you make a solo record? But Paul, like you said, he, he said, I've done it before. I'm not going to do it again. And Taylor Swift, it blows my mind that she made Red, which is one of the perfect pop albums of the century of all time. And then she said, well, I did that. Next time I'm going to make a record that sounds like Erasure or, you know, <laughs> Depeche Mode that does not sound anything like Red. Not a single banjo solo, not a single acoustic guitar. I'm just going to make these synth pop songs. It's completely bizarre that in terms of how they see their brand as reinventing the brand every time, which is exhausting. Honestly, as a Taylor Swift fan, I'd be absolutely delighted if she just said, I'm going to remake Red again. And yet it's really funny that all we know about her next phase is that it will be different from this phase. Well, she's now, she and I both are now the age that Paul McCartney was when the Beatles broke up. <laughs> so where do you think Taylor Swift is going to be at age 76? I see her doing what Paul is doing. I see her on the road and staying out on stage every night for three hours until people are dropping from exhaustion and begging, please, you've rocked us. We are thoroughly rocked. We could not be more rocked. We're going to have to be carried out of here on stretchers. Something that really blew my mind on Friday night when Paul came back for the encore, because of course he's just done Hey Jude and everybody is completely like devastated and super emotional. He comes back for the encore and he says, do you want a bit more? And of course everybody yells, yes, everybody wants a bit more. But Paul wants a bit more, more than any of us. Nobody wants this show to go on more than Paul. And you know, even when he's leaving the ramp, both for the encore and then at the end of the show, He's coming down and he's like dancing and he's mugging for the camera and he's waving to everybody. He just doesn't want the show to end. I see Taylor Swift being very much that way. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start. So, two last things. First of, can you tell me about the 90-minute version of Hey Jude that you created? Yes. Well, I was a little boy with my dad, and we were listening to Hey Jude. We had it on the Blue Album. 
which was one of the formative artifacts of my life. And we were talking about how long a song it is and how repetitious it is and wondering how long we could stretch it. And we just made a tape where we would just like get to the part of Hey Jude and then we would pause and like put the needle back on the record and see if we could stretch it out and maybe, you know, go back to the bridge a bit. It was a crude, clumsy recording. It was a nine-year-old boy and, and his dad. But I still have this tape and I still listen to it. I think, wow, like my dad is a darn good sport for wanting to spend his Saturday afternoon this way. But Hey Jude is a song you can stretch out to a very, very long time. Did you actually listen to, did you have like road trips where you would put the 90-minute Hey Jude in and just listen to the whole thing through? Not if my sisters are going to be listening because they found it like unbearable. <laughs> I will still listen to it though. You know, I still have the tape and I put it on for sentimental reasons. But to me, it's an artifact of Beatle love at a really strange period because of course, I was a little boy. It was the 70s. The Beatles were broken up. My dad would kid me and my sister. Sometimes he'd say, you know, like, you know, this band doesn't exist anymore, right? You know, this band broke up. You know, the Beatles are over, right? And for him, it was very amusing that we wanted to listen to the Beatles more than anything else, even though the Beatles officially no longer existed. And it's only in retrospect that we realized that, no, like the Beatles still existed and the Beatles are still going to keep going on and, and that they tried breaking up and it didn't work. Well, the Beatles are going to keep going on, but there's now two of them left. And I remember, I'm sure you've seen the Paul McCartney carpool karaoke thing. So moving. That was great. Yeah. I watched that and sort of bawled my eyes out. Sure. You and me both. The underlying thing for me was, oh shit, Paul McCartney's going to die at some point and it's not going to be like that far away it might be like 10 years from now but it's not going to be much longer than that if it is so how were you emotionally situated about the idea of us losing Paul McCartney at some point well I'm a big fan of denial which is where I am parked I am absolutely in denial I'm always shocked when these things happen you could try to prepare yourself emotionally but that's a total waste of time because you try to prepare yourself emotionally but then you think okay you know and, and you look at who's very old but then you know, Prince, you know, who was very young. Tom Petty, who was on tour all last summer. So many friends of mine had just seen him a week before he died at the Hollywood Bowl on stage. For these musicians, they want to cram as much music as they can into the time that they have. That's a natural impulse for musicians. As Randy Newman said brilliantly, as he says everything so brilliantly, I remember an interview a couple of years ago where he was asked why he keeps touring. And he says, well, musicians do. Musicians just go on. There's nobody applauding at home. And I think with Paul McCartney, as with Taylor Swift, they're just driven by the applause. They're also driven by, you know, this insane standard of perfectionism that they have for themselves. But with Paul McCartney, he will keep making music. And to me that he's so driven, I mean, at 76, which is a very advanced age to be three hours and dancing and playing guitar and singing, you know, and with sweat pouring off you and your audience is exhausted after an hour of standing and screaming. Paul just, he has that appetite for it. And I think the appetite is what drives him on and the appetite is what keeps him young. Well, Paul McCartney, at least for now, is still with us. So you should go out and see him on tour. You should get the White Album Deluxe re-release when that comes out. And Ringo's on the road too. Yeah. I saw him a few weeks ago. He was great. He's nearly 80. He's 78. He's two years older than Paul. He's dancing for most of the show. If he's not playing drums, he's up there dancing. He's still a good dancer. He looks very... I mean, I'm sure this is partly like Imperial neck tuck and he's dyeing his hair and stuff. But like, I keep having to remind myself that he was the oldest Beatle. I mean, yes. <laughs> he never seems like that. And he was the one who was in hospitals as a child and yeah. wasn't expected to live 
to his 16th birthday. Something about old musicians, you know, they have a youthful spirit about them. Honestly, it's not like any other old people, I think. Just something about old musicians. They have the best stories. They have that drive. They have that rhythm. There's something about old musicians that keeps them young. And Ringo never got cynical. He he's still, Absolutely. He's still the peace and love guy. He loves being Ringo, just like Paul loves being Paul. Ringo and Paul, both people who are very happy to be who they are. And that comes across and they can tell that they can make people happy by doing things that make them happy. So Ringo is on stage. And of course, he's got this band full of all-stars. You know, he has the guitarist from Toto. So he's doing Toto songs. He's doing Africa. And it's really strange to think, well, this is a feature none of us saw coming for Ringo Starr <laughs> that every night he'd be on stage playing drums to Toto's Africa. He's not playing I Am the Walrus. He's not playing Strawberry Fields Forever. He's not even playing Octopus's Garden, which he wrote. He's playing Toto's Africa. And for him, this is part of being in a band and being part of a musical review. And this is something that drives him on. And it's beautiful that they both have found so much of a musical spirit that keeps them young and keeps them alive. Yeah. And hopefully they will be literally alive for a fair amount longer. Here, here. Yeah. Everyone should go out and buy the paperback of Dreaming the Beatles, which has, was it a new forward or a new afterward? A new afterward. Right. That's available now. The new version of the White Album's out on, I think, the 9th of November, which won't be long after this podcast has come out. Rob, thanks so much for talking to me about the Beatles. Thank you so much. Big fan of the podcast. A joy to be on it. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.